Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone today. Looking forward to our time together uh, as we uh, continue to uh, kind of see what God is teaching us through the life of David. Um, I was just talking to Kurt about um, Absalom, his son, and um, as we uh, continue to go through this cycle of David's story, it's actually surprising to me how much of this, uh, how much of this part of the story takes up in the in the, in the narrative as a whole. It's actually a whole lot, and uh, it's really not as part of the story that we hear very much about David at all. It's it's really it's dark, it's hard, it's uh, surprising, it's disappointing, but. There's a lot of things that we can learn from this. And uh, I hope that there are some things that we'll be able to crack open in our souls today uh, that we will leave here being just a little bit different because we've spent this time together around God's Word in God's presence. The Psalms, where we go to every week to begin our time together, uh, really Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are introductory Psalms. Uh, There is even some historical evidence that these Psalms may have been... crunched together. Uh, So Psalm 1 and 2 were one, uh, then later were divided out. Uh, But certainly Psalm 3 is kind of the, okay, now we're moving. And notice what it's about. Absalom. And what David penned, and we don't see any of this. We don't see any of this in the narrative of of, uh, 2 Samuel. But we see it in the Psalms. That David pins this psalm when he is running from his son. Now what would that feel like? To feel like you have to run from your life from your own son. Right? So let's pray together Psalm 3. Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again. Because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Though tens of thousands, the song of the war was Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. Yeah, there you go. Good job. Way to pick that up. Yeah, we haven't heard that song being sung very much in Samuel anymore, have we? That kind of kind of has faded into the to the distance as now things are growing in division. So, good call, Tom. Well, as Steve said, the eggs are getting scrambled here. We're in a mess, and it's a big, horrible mess. It's been building. And so, just to ground ourselves, 
who's the good guy? <laughs> you know, at least he's clear on what he's meant to do. He's, he's focused. He doesn't change. I mean, you listen to David's psalm here. And, you know, it's about Absalom when he's fleeing, but, you know, smash the teeth out of my enemies, and I am surrounded by people that want to kill me. Uh, yeah, David, uh, but you kind of brought this on yourself. You've been a hot mess. You've let this thing fester for over a decade. You can't talk to the heir to the throne. You can't talk to your own son. I mean, it's, it's hard to f- find much sympathy for David. But on the other hand, is Absalom the good guy? No, he's not. In fact, God sort of has a mess on his hands, right? Absalom has a lot of the skills of his father, but he doesn't have the sort of spiritual side, the desire to be better. Now, David benefited in his life a great deal from others that came along and helped him. Samuel the prophet, remember Jonathan gave up his future to be a friend of David, and you see that relationship really tenderize David's heart. So instead of repeating that for his son, David still continues to be focused on himself. So God now has a gifted, dangerous heir to the throne that has an unregenerated heart. So there is, I think, really no good guy. It's just a battle of people that are in a mess. And see, we're, talk- we're talking about this yesterday. When David was, was sort of growing up, he was the young generation fighting the previous generation. And that sort of always happens. The, the young lion has to eventually replace the old lion. I mean, he was going to replace Saul. He was going to be a better kingdom. But David can't seem to make that transition. He can't seem to make the transition from being the king to helping the next king happen. David is now going to wage war on the younger generation that should replace him. We're, we're in an ugly, terrible place. And really, the legacy of the United Kingdom of Israel is lost in this struggle. Uh, the, the mess that happens will, will never get fixed. So let's look at Second Samuel 15. From a military point of view, it's interesting. There is a whole other contingent of Philistines. We pick up in verse 19. Uh, they call them Gigites, but these are uh, just... Philistines from the five cities. Remember, the Philistines are sort of proto-Greeks that have sailed in and settled in Israel. They're not particularly numerous, but they know how to fight. They have iron weapons. And so right before all this goes down, a troop of them arrives. It's about 600, and they're mercenaries. They know that David hires mercenaries and takes good care of them, mostly. And so they want to join up. So we have this little exchange where David's like, eh, I'm not sure I can trust you. But eventually they take a vow. In verse 21, But Ittai, who is the commander of this troop, said to the king, I vow by the Lord. So he's declaring in the name of Yahweh. And by your own life. <laughs> oh, 
okay, that I will go wherever you go, no matter what happens, whether it means life or death. David replied, all right, come with us. So Ittite and his 600 men and their families went along. So for keeping the numbers, David's force now has risen to 1,200. He has his original mighty men, his original 600, which, remember, was criminals, outcasts, and Philistines, and now he's doubled the number of Philistines. Tom just brought us up the thousands. In a very quick order, Absalom can use the national army to send 12,000 troops against David. That's not the whole standing army. It takes them a little longer, which again would probably be in the tens of tens of thousands. So it's a massive battle between quantity and quality. And David has the better troops, but he is he is outnumbered. He doesn't have popular support. Although he does in some areas. We look at the next verse. Um, there was deep sadness throughout the land as the king and his followers passed by. So how terrible that a son is overthrowing his father, that all of the story of Goliath and all of that has has seemed to come to naught. They crossed the Kidron Valley and then went out towards the wilderness. So David is heading east, and then he's going to head south to the place where he hid from Saul. So the wild desert, if, if you will. But look what happens in verse 24. Hmm. Abiathar and Zadok and the leading priests took the Ark of the Covenant of God and set it down beside the road. Oh, yeah. Remember the priests? The people you go to when you need direction from God? Remember Abiathar, who is the last surviving priest Saul had killed all the other ones? And David said, hey, Abiathar, man, I'm sorry everybody got murdered. Tough, tough luck there, bud. But I'll take care of you. We'll be like peas in a pod. We'll be together. I haven't seen you in a while. Abiathar, maybe we should do lunch. Uh, what? So the priests, at least, are coming out in support of David. They've brought the ark. Is that a big deal? That's a huge deal. We're not even talking about the ephod or the, the stones, if you remember that, the cast of stones. We're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. So in a sense, the priests are prepared for war. They brought out the nuclear weapon, so to speak, and they've set it on the side of the road. That's not the place you're supposed to put the nice things of God, okay? Don't leave it at the side of the road. So what do you do as David? I mean, you're, you're there. You've got your, your troops. You don't have a lot of popular support, but you can hit, and you can hit hard and fast. The whole country seems to be upset. What do you do? I mean, really, you guys have been at with him for a while. What do you think? Ask for God's direction. Yeah, that, that would be good. Call Joab. Call Joab. Hey, Joab, what are you doing? I don't care. Um, get in the car. Let's go. Uh, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm picking on him, but 
can you not talk to Absalom yet? You know, the, the heartbreaking thing is he never talks to him. There will never be a conversation between the two. How does that happen? How can you write the Psalms the way that you do? Laying your heart out. You're willing for, I'd say, thousands, thousands to die instead of face your past. Face what happened. Face not being whatever you imagine yourself to be in the eyes of your child. Do you think there's still time for him to make amends? You know, I don't know, and, and the real world, maybe not. But wouldn't you expect the man after God's own heart to have that grace even at the 11th hour? A lot of people are going to suffer because of these choices. So I don't know if Absalom would have listened. Um, but, I mean, what, what do you think? you think he would have? I think, I think it's a... Man today with the kids, I'll, I'll try. Yeah. I was. Yeah. So David is going to be really old. He's going to be in his fifties, uh, with life expectancy being a lot shorter. And Absalom is probably closer to thirty in that in that in that realm. So they're not children. They're not teenagers throwing a fit. This is a lifelong mess that's that's been built up. But so one of the things that we're doing, and so it's interesting when you're when you're reading a book and you you you're hearing what somebody's reflecting on, you start to apply it to what you see happening in Scripture. Uh, it, the book that we're reading that uh, we are starting to read for staff is a book by uh, Donald Miller called uh, "Hero on a Mission." And it talks about that at any given moment of our day, we can be playing the role of a victim, a villain, a hero, or a guide. And that, of course, the hero and the guide are going to be people who give life, and the victim and the villain are going to be people who take life, right? And at any part of our day, we can play those roles, right? And so the kind of the goal of life is to move out of victim mentality, certainly uh, abandon villain villain mentality, uh, where we try to make other people small to make us look good, that kind of thing. But it's just really fascinating to notice that this is, that David, after the whole Bathsheba incident and what seems to have shut him down in relationship to his son, is he started playing the victim. That all of this terrible thing started to, to uncork as a result of his rebellion against God with Bathsheba and Uriah and all, all of that. And he started and, and that what the victim does, and I think whenever I find myself playing the victim, I find, you shut down. It, it, you, you become paralyzed because the problem is all out there. With, with victim mentality thinking. And that's what David did. I mean, this terrible thing happened with Amnon and his daughter. His, his, his son and his daughter, right? Terrible thing happened. But who knows more than anybody the cost and the pain of sexual sin? David. And yet, oh, this is ha- oh, t- happening. This, why, why me, God? I mean, you ever make that your prayer? 
Why me? That is the prayer of a victim. Right? And so it's this, this the, the thing that David, David was the great hero. Saul has slain his thousand. David, his, he was a great hero. But when he slipped back into victim thinking, it paralyzed him for becoming the guide for his own son. And so I think it's really important for us to ponder that in our relationships, uh, not just with our kids, kids certainly, but with friends. I mean, we have the opportunity to play the guide in the life of our friends, but not when we resort back to victim thinking. And so just kind of keep pondering that through the rest of David's story. He doesn't slip out of his victim thinking. I don't know if he ever does, uh, especially when you get to the end of his life. And we'll get to this guy named Shimmy. How many of you ever knew, knew about Shimmy and how of an important part Shimmy plays in the last third of David's life? It is fascinating. And we'll get to that. What are your thoughts or your reflections or your questions on that? Yes, Brian. The whole thing with David, you know, this is kind of a bigger picture probably what you were talking about. He's a powerful guy. Very much. And, you know, looking at our current day, this world is right in here. He needs good, powerful men. Mm-hmm. But good, right? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. There's plenty of powerful guys that are terrible, right? So, Putin, yeah. My whole thing looking at this is like David just can't control their just more than anything. And women are doing this, to be honest about it. Um, so how do you reconcile like that power versus that that uh, you know Paul talked about it throwing inside? I mean women are throwing that inside, right? So, you know, it's like I'm thinking of it like current day, you know, like we need to lead our families, our church, our community well, not not manipulate, not change, That's right. you know. So I you know, I've been looking at it from a micro level with that. Just, I mean, we all have that thought, whatever it is. I mean we all can name what it is, even inside of us. So, you know, that's that that's kind of the thread I look at this as. He, he could do some really good, and if he would have done all this crap with women, probably even more than what yeah. we have done without doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is good. You know, David had plenty of examples how God helped him defeat the monster, the bad guy, and God could have really helped with that thorn. But if you deny it, you hide it, and you certainly don't teach your kids. You know, think again about the song that Steve read in the beginning. Was he playing the victim? All of my enemies surround me. All of them want to destroy me. Well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, with the time we have left, let, let's look at what David does, right? He's got the priests here, he's got the ark. It, like we said, really good point. He's got his thorn, he's a powerful man. What does he do? The priests. And we'll talk about Zadok later. He, he becomes a really, really important figure. He's kind of a rising uh, priest figure, almost like a Billy Graham, uh, which is, is a big deal. He actually will be the one that anoints Solomon and kind of legitimizes his reign to a certain degree. So these two power figures, so it's the priests, the Kohen, and the Levites. It's all the priests. They're out there. 
Then they offered sacrifices there until someone had passed by. David instructed Zadok to take the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, David said, he will bring me back to see the Ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what he's with what's let him do what seems best to him. So what did David just do? Yes, poor me. Maybe God's done. Maybe he's not. I mean, this is this is the scrambled egg part. It's hard to to suss this stuff. I mean, on the one hand, is he committing himself to God? Mm, okay, maybe you know God's going to do what God's going to do. But don't be a jerk, David. You've not done what you're supposed to do, and now you dump it all on God. The priests are trying to help. The priests could rally the people in a way that David's popularity, especially in the north, cannot. So he's got, he's got a card here to play. Now, I'm going to jump ahead and give you sort of my interpretation. I think David knows he can't win a popular uprising, that he's, he's in trouble. So what he does is remove himself from the, sort of the populous area to get out in the wilderness where they're going to have a head-on fight. And he's going to bet his money that his mercenaries can kill the, uh, the national levy, the, the regular army. He's seen this work out before. And when he's out in the battlefield, he doesn't have to worry about popular support. Once he's killed Absalom, then he can come in with his mercenaries and, and knock heads. That's the dark side of David. Uh, I think that's what he, he's thinking here. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe there is this side where he's just depressed. He doesn't care anymore. Like you said, he's the victim. Uh, pfft, who cares? Um, God didn't seem to care. But doesn't it just grab you that God, in a sense, has set up a table? Um, we're going to have a meal together where we're going to talk. And David never says anything. Hey, I got the two greatest priests in the town. I got all the priests in the town. I got the ark right here, God's throne. Hey, God, should I let my son take over? Should I go talk to my son? God, what do you want me to do? I know I've messed up. How about read him a psalm, David? And then I'll finish it with this, 27. Um, this, is, this is our old David. Then the king told Zadok the priest, look, Here's my plan. You and Abiathar should return quietly to the city with your son Ahimaaz and Abiathar's son Jonathan. I will stop at the shallows of the Jordan River and wait there for a message from you. Let me know what happens in Jerusalem before I disappear in the wilderness. So what, what does he want? Spies. The priests are supposed to now give him information. Uh, and it, it's going to come down to two questions. Is Absalom going to send the troops he has available, the 12,000, against David? Or is he going to organize the whole nation, try to do that, and send him against David? So David needs that information in order to react. So God has sent you people that can give you counsel, that can help you talk to the Lord. And David is doing what David always does, right? He finds the flanking maneuver. He finds the way around. He doesn't fight Goliath sword for sword. He kills Goliath with a stone. He's, he's the oblique approach. 
that doesn't bode well, I, I, I think. But yeah, agree. Questions? Well, I think we've got some time to keep going. Okay. Let me ask this, because it's true in my life. When uh, the cards start tumbling, when you're playing Jenga and you remove the wrong piece, does it ever feel like all of your bad decisions come back to visit you? I mean, what do you do in a crisis? We're seeing what David does in a crisis. I double my bodyguard. I try to get some spies. Do you at every point stop and try to come clean about, man, I have messed up, and I need, I need to be honest with people. Um, it's, not, it's not happening for David. Continuing 29, so Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to the city and stayed there. Now again, appreciate, this is the nuclear weapon of Israel. These priests didn't drag this thing. What happened last time they had to move this thing? <laughs> Somebody died. This is not uh, the Rose Bowl parade float here, okay, David? We got this thing out for you because you need help. And yeah, go put it in the garage. What? David walked up the road that led to the Mount of Olives. Wait a minute. Mount of Olives? What's that? Something in, happens there in the New Testament, doesn't it? Huh. The real estate's pretty narrow in Israel. This is the mountain right across from Jerusalem. This is the road leading east that will take the road south. And when Jesus stays in Jerusalem, uh, he always stays at the Mount of Olives. Well, not always, but most of the time. It's sort of a camping facility, if you will. Uh, there's not a lot of hotels, despite what we imagine at Christmas time. And so when you make a pilgrimage, usually you stay around the city. Uh, Mount of Olives is this mountain with olive trees, so it's nice. It's an orchard. Uh, still there today, really, really old trees. Um, overlooks. And I think God intends a lot of this... Uh, to run through our minds here. This is the place where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asked God to take away this cup, that he didn't want to die for humanity. But he has this big struggle with God. Your will be done, not mine. And here David is walking literally over the same stones. And whose will is David getting done? His own. I'm going to have a fifth column. I'm going to have my mercenaries. I'm going to be in a battlefield that's to my advantage. Again, all of these are skills that God gave David. He's a powerful man, but he's not being a good man. Um, would it have been the worst thing in the world for David to have said, you know what, Absalom, you take the throne. Let me be the guide. Let me, uh, and maybe kings don't do this. I've never been a king. I don't know. But I think men after God's own heart sometimes can do that. At what point do we realize we've got to step back in our kids' lives to let them, in a sense, be the hero? I maintain in my own life the challenge for parenting is always when I get really good at where they are developmentally, they change. 
right? I, I think I could handle an eight-year-old pretty well right now, but I got a 15-year-old turning 16, and it's a completely different ball of wax. But, and you guys know this, at 15, they know everything, right? You're dumb. And so Jason wants to argue about everything. And, and part of it is he's not an adult yet, and I need to, to give him boundaries, and I can't let him be a little monster. But I do see there are times in which let, let him win a little bit. Let, let him take those baby steps. Um, he's, he's not who he needs to be yet, either is Absalom, but he's not going to get there if I'm always the hero, if I'm always the king, if I'm always the everything. So it's hard, but we have an incredible example in God. Talk about the one who's always the king. And yet, doesn't he again and again with us step back and say, all right, let's, let's see your choice. I know you're going to screw up, but I want you to make the choice. And then we'll, we'll deal with the consequences. If you listen to me, I'll be the guide, as he says, the, the Holy Spirit, the great counselor that will come alongside you. As he models this relationship, I think David should have modeled it with Absalom. So... We can get a little bit more. Um, David walked up the road, led the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his feet was bare as a sign of mourning. And the people who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the mountain. When someone told David that his, his advisor, uh, ugh, this is the worst name in the entire Bible. We're just going to call him A-hole. A-hole, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to say it, man. <laughs> I think it's a Ahithophel, Ahithophel was now backing Absalom. So I think Steve is really on to something here. Right. <laughs> there is a guide now for Absalom, an advisor who is going to help his son. And this advisor is the wrong person. Absalom is going to turn to all of his dad's old advisors. But what is his dad doing? He's filling Jerusalem full of spies. People that really want to help David in his inner court, he's sending back to Jerusalem to give him the inside information. Absalom has not had the counsel of his David. How many times did David go to war with Absalom to teach him? Zero. It was so much easier to send Joab to do it. Or so much easier to stay home and look at the ladies to play with a thorn in my side um, than to take my son and teach him how to command the troops and to fight and to do these things that God gave me to do, but we're supposed to do in a good way. So our a-hole here is um, going to be advising your son. Maybe another way to say this is, if you don't give your kids good advice... You leave it open to other people who do not love your kids or have their best interests at heart to give them advice. And that's a dark, hard place. David, uh, David then prays, O Lord, may Ahithophel give Absalom foolish advice. And so that's exactly what happens. As they reached the spot at the top of the Mount of Olives where the people worshipped God, David found Hushai, the archite, waiting for him. Hushai had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head as a sign of mourning. But David told him, 
if you go with me, you will only be a burden. Well, thanks, David. You know, I, I, you're so good with people. If you come with me, you will only be a burden. Return to Jerusalem and tell Absalom, I will now be your advisor, just as I was your father's advisor in the past. Then you can frustrate and counter Ahithophel's advice. Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, are there. Tell them the plans that are being made to capture me, and they will send the son, their sons, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, to find me and tell me what is going on. So David's friends, Hushai, returned to Jerusalem, getting there just as Absalom arrived. So whatever kind of help David gets, he turns it back to Jerusalem to have a fifth column, both in the priests that will support him, but in advisors that his son is going to need um, that are ultimately going to lead to his son's death. I know I'm beating a drum here, but can you imagine how this would have gone if David said to Hushai, go back and pretend to be an advisor for my son. And when the time is right, you tell Absalom, I'm sorry. I was a coward. I should have dealt with this years ago. You're right. I still love you. Let you and I work this out so nobody has to die. That would have been a whole different story. But we're not there. David has gone into survival mode, and a lot of people will lose their heads. Reading this again just makes me wonder, is a war against your child ever worth it? I'm not saying let your child go completely crazy or go off a cliff. I mean, if, if they're making a bad decision, you need to fight for them, fight for their soul, fight for their salvation. But when it comes over the issue of being the hero or the guide or letting your child take leadership, is it ever worth it? Are you ever really going to win this battle? David is going to kill his future in order to keep his presence. That's not good. So, any questions? Now that we're all pumped up and excited, go call your kids and tell them you're a screw up, but not as big a screw up as I am. So, right. Sometimes it's really not. But remember, keeping their heads down. Because remember what Absalom didn't do but thought about doing. He had all the other princes, right, when he kills Amnon. 
and they thought for sure that he was going to kill all the rest of them. Again, he's a chip off the old block. Uh, David's rivals to the throne all had accidents. So uh, Absalom's capable. Um, but Yeah, I, I would think so. What, we'll, we'll get into this next week, but the, the genealogies here get really, really crazy. And just like any kind of petty dictatorship, um, it gets inbred at the top. And so one of the advisors to uh, Absalom is the grandfather of Bathsheba. So there, there's a little hanky, well, hanky-panky, but a little inbreeding going on that it wouldn't be so easy to kill uh, Solomon, you'd upset some of your support base. But that's a that's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure I would let David in the church. <laughs> um, but he uh, he has the spotlight of God shining on him, and I I just always stand amazed at how Scripture does this. I mean, talk about a character study. You know more about David. I, I wish we did this in the New Testament. We don't do it quite as much because we're we're into the gospel mode. We're into the creation of the church. But Stephen always get the question: Who are the heroes of the Bible? <laughs> okay, um, the, the world is filled with real people then and now, and so God's trying to enhance the good that's within us and diminish the evil that's um, lurking in there. God always sends someone to help. Always sends someone that can give us good advice. I mean, the priests were right there on the side of the road with Ark. And David just went into conspiracy mode. So, Did David do heroic things? No doubt. Did David die a hero? <laughs> when the, when, you, when the, your last words are a command to kill somebody... Um, who treated you badly, who threw a few rocks at you, uh, you died a victim. And may may that not be with any of us. May we never die the victim. I have a a great goal in life now. If I can pull it off. On my deathbed, I think I'm going to try this. Tell Jason, wait, there's one more thing. I need you to kill somebody. Hopefully I can do this and say, I'm just kidding, before I actually die, right? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for getting down in the muck and the mire and the mess that is David's life and that is our life too. Lord God, we know there are many, many voices in our world, in our head, all pulling us in one direction or another. Most of all, sometimes, Lord, we hear the voice inside of ourselves that tell us we've got to survive this. We've got to get through this. We've got to pull ourselves up, and we've just got to get through it no matter what the cost is. We pray that this story will stay in our hearts to remind us that sometimes to win a battle is to lose it life. Help us not to be afraid to live the days that you have given us. When we're young and we fought the beasts, we know you stood beside us. 
But as we get a little bit older and we allow our kids to take a little bit of the lead, may we also see you with us. Help us, O Lord, to learn to listen to your voice above all others, to train our hearts first and foremost to go to you. For we know there will be no end of choices and advice that we get, but it is nothing compared to what you will give us. So let us remember our lives for all that they truly were and not be afraid. For in our darkest moments, you are there. And when we tell the story of the dark moment or even the joyous victory, we're telling your story, your love with us. We know that this truly is your word, the word that we should share with our kids, others' kids, all that you put in our lives. So that on our day of temptation, of stress, of crisis, we'll know what to do. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. Hero on a mission. Donald Miller.